Welcome, everyone, to the Two Real Cinema Club. My name is Andres Lorente. And I am James Rosica. And uh, every episode of the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch two movies, an old movie and a new movie, and we try to connect the dots. I, I like to think of us as uh, we're, like, we're like two tiny spiders slowly weaving a web between all of those old DVDs that you have in your attic, joining one to another in a dusty web of fly-catching cinephilia. Oh, that I love it. Is, <laughs> that is the Two Real Cinema Club. It also, it also sounds like a great horror film. <laughs> or or just you need to clean up, clean up the attic more often. That's what I was going to say. Sadly, it also sounds a lot like my life. I, <laughs> they used to call me Spider, and I do have a lot of DVDs, and I'm sitting in my attic where they are stored right now, so... <laughs> Yes, to me it's a joke, and to you it's your life. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if we even need to do a pod now. We've uh, taken care of business. <laughs> um, but I, we do want to uh, share with you uh, our socials so that you can tell your friends. I know you probably know these things by hearing us week after week. And you're going to hear me say Two Real Cinema Club a lot because that's a lot of the handles here. So on Twitter, it's Two Real Cinema Club at twitter.com, on Instagram at Two Real Cinema Club. Cinema Club at Instagram.com. Read the blog, two real cinema club.com. Email us at two real cinema club at gmail.com. And this is really for your peoples. Tell your peoples, tell your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts, and on YouTube. And on YouTube. Yeah. And this so I, week, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, I was going to say, this This is um, this episode marks, I feel like it's a climax to my broadcasting career. I get to say something for real this What's week that? on What's the Two Real Cinema Club that I've wanted to say into a microphone for probably 40 years. Oh. Uh, and the thing is, it's on like Donkey Kong. This week we have watched two Donkey films. <laughs> um and uh, it's considerably more emotional and sophisticated than that, that makes it sound. So we have watched uh, EO, yes, which is a brand new Polish film about a donkey. And we have watched Oazard Balthazar, uh, which is a Robert Bresson film from 1966, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, which is uh, what uh, EO is you know, kind of paying homage to. It's funny. We're watching EO and then we're watching the OG E.O., the OG donkey <laughs> film. Uh, O.S.R. Baltasar, yeah. So, uh, and and E.O. EO should not be confused with that Michael Jackson, Michael Landis film that was like, exclusively shot for Disney World, something like that called The Adventures of Captain E.O. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, yeah. So apparently that's like, I think it's a, it's a Michael Jackson thing as well. But we didn't watch that. No. Oof. I think two donkey films was probably a little bit more than enough. Well, I'm I, I glad we watched them back to back. Okay, so I'm, I'm, do, I'm doing the first. So Yeah, go ahead. Um, so, uh, Eo, Eo, it's a 2022 film. Uh, it's a Polish film. It's directed by uh, Jerzy Skolimowski. Uh, and I'm going to apologize in advance yeah. for getting many of these European names wrong during the pod. So it was written by Jerzy and his wife, oh. um, Eva Piakowska. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Solomowski. Is it um, no? But up above, you've got it as Skolimowski. Is it Skolimowski? Yeah, yeah. I or I've already typed it out wrong. You left Skolimowski. Out a K. Yeah, well, I'm going to take that again. Well, thank God for the miracle of digital editing. <laughs> so, Skolimowski wrote uh, dialogue for um, Polanski's Knife in the Water. He's 84 years old now. He's been uh, at this game for a long time. Wow. Previous famous films of his include uh, The Shout. Uh, Moonlighting, I think a 1980s movie under that name, uh, The Lightship. I have not seen any of these. The only way that um, Skolomovsky has come into my life is that he appears in The Avengers uh, oh. as a villain 
interrogating Black Widow. Oh, my God. Um, so I think that's the only time I've ever been aware of him. Um, but this uh, is his uh, newest film, um, and it packs a punch. Let me tell you about it. So EO, it's a new Polish film about a donkey. So the film opens in contemporary Poland, where EO is a performer in a circus. He's paired with his adoring trainer, Magda, who goes by the stage name of Cassandra, or Cassandra, I guess, Cassandra. They perform a routine at the beginning of the film in this kind of fugue of of flashing red lights. The audience loves them. Um, The show is great, but the next day... She is his only defender as Eo is whipped to pull a cart to the scrap metal merchant. And then later that same day, the whole circus is closed down for animal cruelty. And so Eo begins a long wander across Europe. He's taken to a stable for thoroughbreds, then a donkey farm for children with disabilities. And then he escapes and he's free. Uh, he escapes into the forest and he goes on a long adventure uh, for the 90 minute film that sees him encounter human kindness and human cruelty in many forms. Now, I must say, last week when we were talking about, or the week before when we were talking about the menu, mm. um, during that movie, I was I was happy to smirk and smile and chuckle under my breath through the dozen, death of dozens of people. Um, and this week, just from the sheer opening few minutes of EO, I've been an emotional wreck, I think, for both of these films. I'm in pieces just watching people be cruel to a donkey. Oh, yeah. Uh, this, this is, this is it, I thought this was a beautiful film about, it's about how humans treat animals and about how humans treat humans. But emotional punch for you? What did you think? Um, I definitely got those themes. And I've got to say, that was a beautiful summary of the film. So succinct. Thank you very much. Oh, my God. I cannot. I'm not going to match <laughs> that. Um, I didn't feel the emotional punch. I just didn't uh, in, in either film, honestly. But we'll talk about both of them as we go along. But um, I did get those themes very clearly. But I didn't get a whole lot else. And I think it has to do with the fact that I had no idea. I don't think it was EO's film. And it doesn't really feel like it was anyone else's film. It's just sort of a piece together these vignettes that um, I think, like, Eo's obviously the connective tissue. You've got this uh, this uh, donkey who links all the characters up in both films, um, and he's this connective tissue, and, yeah, he suffers a lot of cruelty. Um, and I think you're right. There is this larger theme of this is how we treat um, one another as well. It's not just animals that we treat poorly. Um, I didn't get the emotional pump punch as much. And I think because a lot of things just seemed very random to me and, and didn't make a ton of sense. So this is what I do want to talk about a lot because I think there's a lot that I'm probably missing in this film. Um, but, you know, gorgeous, very well done. We were warned about lights flashing before we even ah. went into the theater because there's so much um, light moving around the screen at times. Um, but right in the very beginning, that's the, that first scene, I thought he was dying or dead in, on stage there. And... Uh, I was very confused from the very very outset of the film. I mean, I I agree. It is a it's a very disjointed film, isn't it? It does yeah. feel like a whole bunch of vignettes, and yeah. the episodes that happen to Eo they could kind of happen in any order, and it wouldn't really affect precisely. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the message of the film it's and I've written in my notes here not conventionally structured, but I think what I mean is not really structured at all. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> but then, if it if it was really conventionally structured, if um, you know. If he was um, 
you know, uh, this kind of circus animal who then escapes and he has an adventure and he makes some friends and, you know, yep. and he makes some enemies and there's a, like a, a donkey catcher who keeps cropping up and then just misses him and crops up again. So yeah. the whole thing would kind of seem like a Disney picture, I think, wouldn't it? It would be difficult to get away from that sort of vibe. Yeah. Whereas the way that it's it's this sort of um, this pan-European um, yeah. series of disconnected scenes, and it is very pan-European. He goes yeah. from, you know, Poland to Italy to... I'm not sure whether he quite makes it as far as France, but he does go all over. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this kind of, um, this big tour. It means that you get a lot of, you cover a lot of miles, mm-hmm. but you don't necessarily yeah, connect the miles very. Um, I think the disjointedness sort of leaves you begging for more emotional content, both from the the donkey perspective and the humans. Like you're never really with the humans long enough to, to do much more than dislike them, I think, in most cases. And then you're also kind of, you lose the donkey a couple of times. I mean, he's uh, he has some medical issues, let's say, um, that kind of take him out of the film as well. I mean, he's obviously, again, he's the, the consistent theme. Um, but like in a Disney film, you'd think, okay, the donkey's going to be talking to other animals and you'll very clearly see his thoughts. And I think that makes it easier to attach to the animal emotionally. I mean, I feel... Mostly it's pity that you get for the animal with the exception of the therapy farm uh, stint that he does, which is, for, I think, my favorite part of the film. And I think that one made the most sense. And I love that scene. Um, I, I find that scene very emotional, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of, it was a, you know, a lovely moment of sweetness, even though you know, there's only really one character in the film that we, we the audience, believe EO loves. And that is Magda. Um, yeah. who is who is his kind of trainer at the circus yep. and you know she doesn't appear very often in the film and he feels like i think we are supposed to believe that he spends most of the film a little bit lovesick and missing her yes um you know and that's like the the only kind of emotional upbeat moment yeah is when he's giving donkey rides to kids at this yeah. farm and it feels you know it's kind of it feels like a place where he you know, he could potentially be happy. Yeah. It's fairly early on in the film, too, and he's got it made. If he can stay on that farm for the rest of his life, he's got it made. But what happens? You know, the love interest comes back. She kind of lures him away. He's inspired to escape, to chase her down. And that just ruins his life from there. I mean, it just gets to be a much harder life. And, you know, he had beautiful purpose. He had a beautiful scenery. And because Magda comes and sort of tempts him and she's what wishing him his happy birthday or something like that. Somehow she's figured out it's his birthday. She comes and... Uh, serenades him a little bit, and then he is inspired to actually make his escape from the best gig he ever had, really. I mean, I was interpreting that scene as a kind of Proustian reference because she brings him a little cake, doesn't he? Yes. I think he eats the cake and then he remembers his, <laughs> life, his past life. I think that's what it's supposed to be. Um, we were talking about, before we started recording, we were talking about how I've bought a bell this week. Yes. Um, oh, okay. And yeah. I, sp- I spent a lot of money on this bell, actually. It's, okay. It's blooming enormous. But it, so, I, so we're going to ring it as the spoiler bell because a couple of people have complained that we spoil the films every week, which, which we do. I that's know, our and job. Yeah. Um, so, so, so um, from here on, we're going to ring a spoiler bell at, at this point in the pod. If you haven't seen EO and you want to see it, uh, we'll ring the bell now. We're going to talk about some things in the second half of the movie. Um, and if you don't want to hear those yet, skip forward 10 minutes and yeah. catch us up. So you ready? Here's yeah. the bell. Oh, I think that's too loud, you know. Oh, but it we, is very loud. And we can ring it again louder to bring people back, right? That's what we'll do. Just keep listening for the loud bell. The safety bell. We need a safety bell. So there's there's a couple of things worth talking about, I think. For um, So the, there's this recurring visual theme of um, flashing red lights. Mm-hmm. We start the movie with flashing red lights, but it comes and 
comes back again uh, repeatedly. And I did find myself by the end of the movie asking, what's that business of the flashing red lights then? I didn't quite understand whether it was supposed to be that um, this is like him seeing red and feeling sort of angry or emotional. Mm. Or yeah. is, it, is it like the moment when he's, it's almost like when he's transformed or when he um, travels outside of himself. I didn't really understand what the flashing red lights meant. Nor did I, nor did I. I mean, it starts with flashing red lights in that very opening scene. And then you see them again. Is it when he, it's like sunsets and things like that. He's escaped. He, we've, he's just yeah. had the, um, are those laser, those are sort of laser light lines uh, from guns hunting wolves or something like that. And he's sort of yeah. caught, caught in this matrix of laser lights. Um, and then I think after that's where the whole screen turns red, really. It's the skies are red. The whole valley turns red. Um, and then remind me, what are some of the other ones? Well, there's this kind of strange sequence with a robotic dog, oh. which is all lit up in this bright red. Was that a dog? I thought it was an insect or something, but I know what you're talking it's, about now. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's some kind of robot, isn't it? Anyway, I didn't really understand what you know, was how that fit in with the rest of the movie. <laughs> and then uh, later on, he goes to like, it's a mink farm or something, isn't it? I couldn't figure that out. I thought those were... Um... Yeah, it was definitely farming. It looked like a, a fox, maybe a, 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 fo- a wild... Um... A European fox of some sort. They looked very dog-like to me, um, yeah. but they were probably harvesting for fur. If maybe me, I guess I so. Know. Yeah, but like the the guy was um, who who looks after the farm. He uh, he's picking up these mink or foxes or whatever animals yeah. they are, electrocuting them. And Eo decides that he doesn't like this, and so he kicks the guy in the head yeah. and possibly kills him. And we yeah. get flashing red lights. Then again, I think it comes up kind of five or six times. Okay, um, and I felt like well, it's you know, it's a it's a great striking visual cue sure i don't think i understood how it related to the story and we've already yeah. said that there isn't very much story so that was something that was a big question mark for me I, I wonder if they're all sort of warning lights i mean obviously this film's mostly about how humans t- treat one another and how we treat animals and i wonder if those are like warning lights of this is bad stuff that you're doing um like killing these animals to make um I don't know, hats and gloves and, and jackets or coats um, or using these animals in a circus or hunting these animals down. So I wonder if those are sort of like warning lights as we go along. It doesn't make sense for that scene where he's wandering into this sort of reddish valley, but um, that could be one possibility. Like it's just on the nose, like stop doing this red light, red light, red light. You are evil. But then I feel like we, we get that red light at the beginning of the movie when he seems to be very happy with Magda doing the show at the circus. So I didn't quite... I didn't quite understand how they connect. I sensed part happiness in that scene. I thought ah. he was, yes, he was sort of transfixed with her beauty or whatnot. But then I thought at one point she was doing CPR. Does she kiss him or is that like a, she's doing animal CPR? On I didn't understand. Because she keeps calling him EO, EO, like as if he's like just straying away into the, the netherworld, onto the other side, the dark side. And then all of a sudden he does sort of come back in and... And finishes the show. And of course, it is, it's an act, too. So you don't know if this is like their rehearsed act and this is how it's supposed to go or if this is a, a different uh, performance entirely. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I got the impression that it was a, you know, some kind of performance where she gets him to play dead and then she revives him or something like that. But it's not really specified in the film. And, you know, and maybe it's not important. Perhaps it's all right for the film to be quite abstract. You mentioned the photography earlier, which is, I think, outstanding. Yeah, there's a lot of low light photography, you know, night photography. This we see animals in the forest at night. Yeah, the laser light that you were talking about earlier yeah. on. Um, some you know beautiful scenes. There's a like, beautiful shot when he's um, 
and I presume it's a he. I don't know. It's never specified. I think mm, that's true. Um, he's in a like a stable on his own, just lit like from a single window off to the side. It's it's just it looks like a you know, Renaissance painting or something. It's just beautiful. Yeah. So you know, great photography. And I th- I think there is a scene in this movie which maybe has some of the best blocking of an individual scene I've seen for many years. There's a mm. scene uh, late on when um, Eo is in the back of a truck. He's being driven uh, off to an abattoir, we presume, uh, to be turned into salami. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, truck driver gets some food at a, at a kind of an all-night gas station. And then as he's walking back to his truck, there's like an out-of-focus figure behind him who really, really looks like a bystander who's wandered onto set who doesn't mm. belong there. And I was kind of watching this woman in the background. It's just this figure in the background thinking, oh, I'm surprised they left that in. And then it turns out that figure is actually... Like a really important character in the next scene, uh, but the way that she's introduced by this kind of this blurry photography it looks like she's not supposed to be there. I think it's really masterful. I think that's a really terrifically set up film. Um, you know, I do think the director here really knows where to put the camera. Oh yeah, absolutely. Which is, you know, um, one of those important basic traits in good film directing. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that occurred to me watching this film was that. Just about everything looks pretty good these days, and I think the technology and expertise has reached this level where there's no excuse to put out like a bad-looking film. Yeah. Um, I don't yep. think that the writing in uh, today's filmmaking is 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 improved that much, but um, everything looks pretty good, and it's you know it's more affordable to make films as well. And I mean, like a pol the Polish and the Czechs are really well known for their cinematography and. He's 84 years old. He's been doing this for a while. So, um, <laughs> he should know how to do it by yeah, now. Yeah, he should know how to do it. And he does. I mean, I think it's it's wonderfully made. It's very artistically made. Um, but I think some time on the story would have made um, a good investment for the film. I mean, it, I'm, I'm just assuming that he's really not very interested in, this, in the story and he's interested in exploring some very raw themes. Yeah. You know, kind of out of the context of, of kind of, you know, complicated or developed characters. Yeah. One other little thing I made a note about, which is that, um, you know, although the film, you know, it is about our treatment of animals and our treatment of each other, it's especially about the treatment of women. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I was about to say that, yeah. The way that kind of you know, women feature in this film, like the, you know, um, Eo's only friend, really, and his defender is a woman. Yeah. Although she herself is used and threatened by the other people in the circus. Um, Isabelle Huppert appears as a kind of micro cameo towards the end of the film as a countess, but her kind of role is sort of, she's kind of there sort of to be taken advantage of by her stepson. And you know, they, they have a kind of a strange complex, yeah. you know, possibly sexual relationship. Um, and then there's another woman who is the beggar that I was talking about at the, at the, the gas station. At the gas station. On. Yeah. Yeah, and she is someone who is to be pitied or maybe to be used yeah. at the gas station. Mm-hmm. So uh, women turn up in kind of similar roles to Eo himself. Yes, unempowered. And I, I, I yeah. don't know if that's the theme or not or if that's just the the way this story was written. But that was I wrote that down as an archetype of character, unempowered women. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly what I saw. And Isabel Huppert also, I th- there's just always some weird part for her to show up in a film. I mean, any European art film, she's willing to just, yeah, get up and be weird. And in this one, 
you just start smashing glass things and, and china and things for no reason other other than the fact that <clears throat> excuse me it's a european art film and that's what you do you start smashing <laughs> stuff and we're going to see this in the other film too um and we just i just saw it in glass onion too the the uh, the knives out film and i thought boy that's just the same thing i don't know why people are smashing all this stuff that's cinema. Yeah, that's cinema. <laughs> that's it. So, uh, yeah, her. I think that's, again, one of the reasons, because you're getting towards the climax of the film and you're thinking, okay, we're going to figure something out here. There's going to be some real big reveal or uh, it's a beautiful Italian sort of estate and it looks like, okay, he's struck gold. He's going to live happily ever after or something's going to happen there. Um, and it sort of just proceeds from there and it doesn't happen. So, um, again, I just I didn't feel like there's a real sense of st- strong storyline either for humans or for um, EO himself or herself. Um, I, I did get another really big emotional punch at the end of the movie. Now, we've rung yeah. the bell, so we're allowed yeah, to yeah. talk about it, I suppose, yeah. which yeah, is yeah. that um, that uh, EO does find himself, you know, in a, a crowd of cattle, isn't it? Uh, basically kind of queuing up at the abattoir. Yeah. Um, and when I finally realized what that scene was I couldn't stop myself saying no out loud. Yeah. Um, I I felt you know, a very strong visceral reaction to that scene. It's, oh, it was uh, enough to 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 turn you into a vegetarian. I think if you aren't already, I found that yeah, um, yeah quite a challenging scene to watch. Although it's not explicit, it's just you know the poor little donkey walking to his his doom. But yeah. um, I thought that was just dreadful. And did you see this film before you saw Ohasard Baltasar? No, I saw it after. After, okay. So you knew. I I knew it was coming because um, that's way that's the way donkeys die. I guess they don't. Yeah, they, I suppose they, it is, isn't it? Not among their their own, but among another species of animal. It's like uh, definitely a theme yeah, between yeah, the two absolutely, films. Absolutely, actually. It's, it's yeah, it's very similar to the other kind film. of lonely, out of place, and I think that to a certain extent, it's very depressing. That might be the human condition that both of these directors are, are getting after as well. Um, well, I, it made me think. I wonder whether EO. You know, is a proxy for the Earth as a whole, I mm-hmm. think, because uh, he, he's sort of kind of passively watching our abuse and yeah. his own slow murder mm-hmm. while kind of being unable to actively do anything about it. It felt like a sort of like a, a, a grand environmental metaphor as well. Yeah. Could I ask you about the bridge scene? Because um, Eo ends up at this bridge. I think it's just before he heads off to slaughter. One of his last experiences... Um, and there's this dam with all this water running, and it's going backward, and it's going, it's going backwards. forward. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I know that this is probably deeply symbolic, but I don't think I quite got it. Um, did you make? I mean, again, this is we're looking for climactic moments at that point in the film, and that didn't deliver too much for me. Was that either emotional or really meaningful for you? Uh, it was kind of neither, I must say. I, okay. I, I, I filed that in the same box as the red flashing lights. Okay. At the far that and the box marked A. Um, it it did. The only thing it made me think of was, oh, it, does this supposed to mean water under the bridge? Is this like, or is it like oh, um, yeah. sort of cleaning away your sins? Um, when we come to um, Oazar Balthazar, I yeah. mean, there's a lot of very religious imagery yeah. in that film. And I was wondering whether that was kind of a bit of a nod to some sort of baptism religious sort okay. of suggestion yeah. in this film. But I don't understand how it fits into the overall plot, and I'm not sure that it does. I'm not really sure that it needs to. As you say, a lot of it is just a beautiful picture. Uh, yeah. And I was happy to enjoy a lot of sections of the film on the basis of that at all, uh, uh, as a whole. Yeah. I was I was sad to see uh, – there was one character I liked, which was the the heavy metal-loving truck driver. 
Um, and the treatment he gets is so severe, and you know that really sets the tone. Probably sort of midpoint, or maybe the end of the second act. Probably really sets the tone of um, of pessimism. Like here, we finally see someone who he might not be exactly saving uh, Eeyore or anything like that, but he's taking him somewhere else, and um, he pays mightily for it. And uh, that was that was a downer. Yeah, that was a, was a shocking moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I must say, for all of the. Um the abstract story free nature of mm-hmm. the film yeah i am still compelled please to put please a yes, call please. to the cliche squad i want to also cliche squad cliche squad are you there The cliche cliche says always answer our calls. You can go first if you like, actually. I would like to go first because I'm going to say something probably completely unexpected. I think this film needs some cliches. So, Cliche (laughs) Squad, is there any way we can insert some cliches into this film? Because uh, I could have used just some touchstones of like just classic storytelling um, as unoriginal as it possibly could be just so that I, you know, was in an entertaining setting where I could really grasp the the themes or grasp the storylines better. So I need some cliches here. Some cliches. I'm sure they could, they could dig some out from uh, Avatar way of water and and share them out. Um, The, the, the the complaint I was going to aim at the cliche squad was, this is a small one and maybe I'm being pernickety here, but um, the association of wind farms and dead birds, (laughs) which always just, it just makes me think of Donald Trump. I'm afraid he didn't didn't give some big speech about how coal is really good for birds, but turbines kill birds. (laughs) Um, I was I was kind of so annoyed by that I actually looked up some statistics um, yeah. on the internet. So apparently in the UK, up to a yeah. hundred thousand birds are killed every year by wind turbines. Yeah. But fifty-five million birds are killed every year by domestic cats. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yes, it's it's a really tiny problem, and and um, and the, the sheer number of birds who are threatened by climate change. Yeah. Uh, means that um, associating turbines with dead birds, I think, is the wrong message. Yeah, I'm sure you know at the time it probably seemed like a you know a cute little metaphor, but I I do worry that um, you know any little suggestion that we need to oppose um, green energy in order to save the environment is yeah. giving the wrong message. Yeah, I hear you. I you know if we ask um, people to not maybe have as many cats or get rid of their cats in order to. Uh, uh, save uh, wildlife, they're going to say, no way. <laughs> Whereas if you say, uh, let's get rid of uh, oil in order to save the uh, um, environment and climate, they'll also say, no way. <laughs> We've got to get rid of the windmills instead. It's the uh, windmills, yeah, damn them. Uh, insane, yeah. But uh, yeah, for, so for me, yeah. That's a, is that a societal cliche or is that sort of some sort of false news or... Uh, stereotype or or misconception, yeah. I guess what that is. Yeah, yeah. well, that's a good. It's, it's a fake news societal yeah. uh, cliche. That's good. Oh, We're expanding the remit of the cliche squad week yeah. by week. Yeah, well, they get overworked. I think they're used to it, so we're just going to keep giving them more and more work to do. Um, so I think I think we're probably going to end up coming back to EO when we talk about um, Oh, Azar Baltazar, because the two yeah. films do have a great deal in common, I yeah. think. Why don't we take a quick break? Um and then come back and we'll talk about the Bresson film and then and then see how closely the two connect. That sounds like a good idea. Yeah. 
should probably disclose the fact that we had a donkey when I was much younger. Oh, no. Um, we call it a burro because uh, my mom, I don't know. I don't know why we call it a burro, but burros and donkeys, I think, are the same. Burros are an essential in South America, and that's the word we use, but I think it's the same thing as a donkey. I think a mule is when a horse and a donkey mate. Is that correct? And then... Oh, wow. I, I should have looked this up. I and then know. I think a burro is basically just a donkey. Burros are probably smaller, maybe even smaller than a donkey, but I think they're essentially the same same creature, same animal. But he was a working burro or a pet? Well, my grandparents had a very... It sort of had a small circus. I don't know what we would call it. <laughs> They were, oh they, were <laughs> they were late vaudevillers. So they sort of started out with dogs at the intermissions of the old movie house shows. So my grandfather would come on with these four, five, six dogs, and they'd jump through hoops and climb ladders and all that. And then um, they got a goat, a mind-reading goat. A lot of this came back to me because my grandfather did this. There's this scam in – which film was it in? I think it was in um, Ojalasar Baltazar when he becomes yeah, – Yeah, when Oh, actually both films. Don't don't they get into a circus in both films where they um, they become an act in a circus, right? One oh one of them God. has one of them is accounting is it accounting or a mathematician donkey I forget if that was in yeah I think I think I think that's Balthazar is that Balthazar yeah um so my my grandfather did that I don't I think it was with a donkey and then I don't know if the donkey that we ended up inheriting when he died was the same donkey I couldn't say that for sure but um, we ended up getting it but they did have at one point they had all sorts of shit tigers um, bears um, lots of um, Birds galore, alligator. I mean, they just had animals. Um, you know, I, I feel like I understand you more deeply now than I ever have. <laughs> now, in my defense, I was four years old when my grandfather died, and that's when basically everything disappeared. So I have vague, <clears throat> very few vague memories of the whole thing, but they eventually had a... They had a Ferris wheel and a rock and roller. I remember seeing that, which are these Ferris. So they had a few rides. They had three elephants at one point. <clears throat> My God. And they had to buy a train car. So um, and <laughs> in hindsight, I feel like uh, there's a lot of talk about animal mistreatment these days in terms – I don't know if the Tiger King was big in England or not, but uh, these documentaries on people who have um, – you know, they oh, keep yeah. lots of felines and all that. I mean, I, I think my grandfather was much better with the animals and treated them much better. But um, they shouldn't have been living. A lot of them were in the basement of this tiny house in oh, my God. northern Massachusetts. Yeah, I hated going down in that basement because it was a little creepy for a four-year-old. But um, <clears throat> So they there were animals everywhere. So I did grow up with that. And then the one animal that we inherited and my mother kept was the burro. So we had a donkey. I lived around a donkey a little bit. He didn't live at our house, but he lived uh, just outside of town a little bit more. And um, she, oh boy, one time she stuffed him into the back of a, vo- uh, no, it's a station wagon in order to get him. <gasps> there was this burro convention or burro show or something like that. I don't even know why we did it, but boy, that car stunk for months <laughs> afterwards. And like, it was hard to say who was more stubborn, the donkey or my mother pushing at him to get him in the back of a back seat of a car. It wasn't a minivan or anything like that. It was a station wagon. Ooh. How has your childhood not been turned into a screenplay yet? <laughs> this, is, this, is very, I mean, uh, this is very ripe for uh, I have roughed it out. I, yeah, I've definitely roughed it out, but it uh, it's hard for me, again, because I came at the very tail end of it all. But uh, it goes back from about the 40s until the 70s, so about 30 years. My grandfather had animals and... And did these shows, and then they started just acquiring stuff, um, the Ferris wheel and these rides and things like that. So it became this sort of traveling circus, and they really just covered northern New England a little bit. Um, 
And then they had this one farm where they did bigger performances, so you could go out and visit for a while. There were a few years, I think, during World War II, where you could go out to the farm and visit. And Tom Mix, the famous TV cowboy, did shows there. And so they would they'd get these guest artists to come out too, and then you could walk around and see all the animals. And But we inherited a burro. So I know a little bit about the donkeys, and um, I... I, yeah, I, that's the stuff I get emotional about because the, the, especially this next film, this one pissed me off because there's so much just animal cruelty. And, oof. Right, yeah. Right. yeah so oh that's a, if anything, I, and I don't know, I mean, I think probably most people get that emotional connection if they're seeing these films. But for me, it was, it was just a little extra personal because of uh, my history with donkeys. Oh, man. Anyway, there you go. Anyway, there you go. But um, are we doing a? Um, do you have a fake ad for us? Or are we going to skip right? On I, to do the have, next I do. I do have a fake. Oh, ad. good. Okay. You, what would you think about me putting that putting that bit about your family in the pod? Uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, I mean, just as I as I spoke it right now. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. spoke it just now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, this, it's brilliant. Think, this one could be a shorter pod. I've got a while you're while we're getting ready. I got to look at my take on Ohasard Baltasar because I don't want right. to say too much. But okay. Fine. Okay. I'm ready for the I'll quickly just speak back. Yeah. So, old is the new new. We're buying music on vinyl, we're reading books on paper. We're fishing out old Walkmans to make our own mixtapes. And at the Two Real Cinema Club, we like to think that we are at the vanguard of this old, new, backward-looking retro future. So we're starting up a whole new, old, new, old scheme. And we're calling it the VHS Video Library. Think of it like a kind of video blockbuster. For the first time ever, you'll be able to rent movies on VHS cassette. Ooh. You'll find there's so much to enjoy. Laugh at the fun of adjusting tracking. Curse the person who rented the movie before you and didn't rewind the tape. Gasp as the picture goes all wobbly and blurry, meaning there must be something gory or a brief flash of nudity coming up that the previous renters have obviously rewound and replayed many times. And then chuckle as the tape snaps 10 minutes into the movie, freeing up a whole evening for <laughs> board games or charades. And for the full experience, rent one of our head cleaning cassettes. It only costs $25 and, as far as anyone can tell, doesn't do anything <laughs> at all. VHS Video Library. It's like the retrospective future of the past. Today. Launching soon. Welcome back, everybody. If you haven't had enough donkey, we're going to give you some more right now. <laughs> As we talk it's about... Donkey part deux. Donkey part deux. Uh, this is a French film. Ohasard Baltasar, 1966 uh, film by Robert Bresson. It was the Venice Grand Jury Prize that year. Uh, it's a Swedish co-production, and there were moments where I thought, oh, yeah, this is kind of Bergman-esque. Um, as I was yeah. watching, I asked myself. Um, and I must confess that we, at film school, there was a screening of another Bresson film. I think it was Diary of a Country Country Priest, Priest yeah. yeah. 
which nearly killed me. Uh, it was very <laughs> slow going. And I got to say, this film felt very familiar for that reason. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but it follows a donkey as well. Um, his name is Baltasar, and Baltasar is one of the three wise men. I don't know my Bible very well, but... Um, and like the wise men, Baltazar wanders quite a bit. He does have uh, this idyllic uh, opening scene where he's with his mother in a field and he grows up a little bit with some children. Marie is an important uh, character and sort of the neighbor boy, Jacques, who sort of fall in love and uh, uh, then fall apart. They sort of drift apart. Um, and Marie kind of is the first um, chain in the chain of ownership of uh, Baltazar. He does move around a lot, just like Eo in... Uh, EO's film. Uh, this I found this film more believable than EO because his world is so much more condensed. It's all this. It all takes yeah, place in yeah. one village. It's not. He's not moving around. It's not trans-European as you were saying about the other film. Um, so it's a little bit um, easier to follow in that way. And he does feel more like a uh, like a protagonist of sorts. Um, he ends up uh, in again like in EO in the hands of some low lifes. Uh, Maria falls for this teenager. Kind of has his own little gang, Gerard, and he ends up. Uh, being in charge of uh, Baltazar for a little while, and he oh, does things like beats him, uh, sets his tail on fire, yeah. um, which was really awful. And that happens around um, this odd scene of it's sort of a there's a suggestion of some non-consensual sexual encounter between uh, Marie and Gerard. Um, and I would say that this film, for me, is really characterized by a lot of sort of unnatural acting. I don't know why, but it did not feel very... None of the characters really felt very uh, genuine. So it was another film where, again, you, and maybe that's intentional, you're feeling for the, the, the donkey protagonist much more than you are feeling for the people, because a lot of the themes are the same in terms of uh, people being awful to people as well as being awful to animals. Um, but I found like characters never really reacted the way humans that I know would react to certain <laughs> things. Uh, it felt but very much... Isn't, in the, I mean, isn't, that, isn't that like Bresson's big idea, I, yeah, basically? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's like their their characters are there to serve his vision. And uh, you mentioned blocking in the first film. The blocking in this film is fantastic. Um, but I, I, the acting is... I don't know if that's expressionist acting. We'll have to talk about that uh, maybe at the end. But um, I'll get back to the story of the film a little bit. There's some sort of murder that may have taken place. It kind of uh, escaped me if it did, but Baltasar sort of ends up with the murderer, the accused murderer anyway, who's sort of running around loose anyway, um, and sort of cures him. So they're similar to the EO film, you know, uh, Baltasar ends up uh, in bad shape at least once, maybe twice, um, and he does get cured by humans too. And we didn't really talk about that much in EO, but there is some... Uh, human kindness in both of these stories, very little. I mean, it stands out in part because it's so sparsely uh, a part of the stories. He also ends up working in a circus the way that EO did. Um, he's a counting doggy. I think he, donkey, he's introduced as the greatest mind of the century or the greatest mind of the city. I'm not really <laughs> sure what it was. Uh, he's doing math. And I, I mentioned to Jimmy a little bit during the break that my grandfather had the same trick with one of his, uh, I think he was a donkey as well, where... Uh, he would be a counting donkey, but my grandfather was really just clutching his neck so tightly in the same number of times that he was supposed to, uh, uh, what is it, bray. So, he, uh. so most of the equations involved single-digit numbers, and then my grandfather apparently <laughs> had his hand in such a place where he was just grabbing, 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 and then the, 
the donkey read uh, Ray enough times that, oh, he knows math. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, the drunken murderer sort of resurfaces. He takes uh, custody of, of uh, Balthazar again. Um, and But then he suddenly inherits a lot of money, and he's a good guy, and Gerard and all his friends are, I don't know, they're friends with uh, the murderer who becomes Arnold. I don't think we learned his late name until later in the film. So it's, it's very interesting how humans can be good to each other in this film as well. There, there are these occasional moments that, well, humans are just very inconsistent. Um, sometimes they're very um, kind to one another, but most of the time they're awful to one another and awful to their animals. Um, and in this film, um, Gerard again starts breaking things in a pub for no reason whatsoever. It reminded <laughs> me a lot of the Isabel Huppert moment. Uh, and again, no reactions. No one really reacts <laughs> to these crazy things that are happening all around them. Um, eventually, sort of the, the uh, Balthasar gets back into Marie's life. I don't know if we need to ring the bell or not. We did. Oh, we... Let's, oh, I've spent all this money on the bell. We should ring yeah, it. Okay. We should ring it. I love ringing the bell. It's ring. my new favorite thing. Thank you. Oh, it is loud, isn't it? It is loud. Yes. Well, <laughs> but it sounds just like the bells that we hear on these animals in these films. So it's <laughs> kindles nice memories. Um, this was kind of the weirdest part for me of this film is that Marie ends up at the the, the last owner of, uh, of Baltasar. Is gonna, he says he's going to work him to death. He's um, So what is he doing? He's uh, working on a well. He's bringing water up, I guess, and he's bottling the water and selling it. But... Um, the strange thing is that Marie kind of goes to him and she sort of seduces him a little bit. Um, and this was the thing that bothered me the most was that the donkey at this point was pure background. This story lost um, Balthasar entirely. Um, she sort of ends, enters this bizarre relationship with this old guy who's working uh, Marie, uh, working Balthasar to death. And Marie, who's supposed to be in love with this donkey from childhood, doesn't really do anything about it or care about it. Um, and then she eventually sort of... Um, Gets back together with Jacques. He's back in town. But then Jacques, for some reason, says, go off. It's okay if you go off to Gerard and see him one more time or whatever. And Gerard and his friends, um, they sort of strip her and beat her the same way they would have beat the donkey earlier. Um, and then the father is even emotionless when he finds her. There's just a lot of this non-reaction stuff to these things that really should provoke incredible reactions. Nothing ever happens. So it's, it's almost this... Uh, this acceptance uh, that humans are bad or that the, the donkey is not worth it, the donkeys don't feel pain, the humans don't feel pain, I think. Um, so I was very disappointed um, in, well, boy, the film in, in, in general. At, um, I think there's some, the, the murderer come, comes back in and there's this reckless gunfire and the um, Balthazar gets shot in this one a little bit, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And this sort of piano score that started in the beginning with Eo's bray, I don't know, with Baltazar's braying, um, comes back, but Baltazar um, sort of suffers the same fate. We've sort of alluded to this before. He, he um, also expires in a pasture surrounded by sheep. So I think Bresson gets to this final image that he wants, but it never really feel, felt earned. And it was very kind of random how he got there. And we, again, we just encounter a lot of uh, animal cruelty throughout. So that's sort of my take on it. There's, it's, it's amazing to me how much happens in this film and yet how little actually happens or how little actually mm. means things. There's a, there's a lot, if you went point by point, I had three pages of sort of bullet notes of all the things that were happening, but nothing seemed to really make sense if you pieced it all together. Um, and it just all seemed very unreal because of the acting style I felt. 
Um, this is a beautiful film, and the blocking, as we mentioned before with the other film, uh, the blocking is really good. And I think that's what Bresson's interested in is making pictures, um, but the movement in the pictures is very bizarre. So it, I just describe it again and again as stiff and rigid. That's, those were the words that came up to me as I was writing uh, notes on the film. It seems to me like a lot of the characters in the film seem kind of numb somehow. Yeah. I mean, uh, Marie, um, you know, we briefly see her as a little child when she, you know, she is briefly happy, you know, as a sort of five-year-old with her kind of six-year-old Jacques boyfriend. Yeah. Um, but any time we see her as a young adult, she just seems numb to the extent that watching it with a 21st century eye, I wondered whether actually she was, you know, a, a victim of some kind of sexual assault by her father, which had left her kind of numb. Oh, yeah. Because they seem to have this kind of very strange relationship. Yeah, but everyone she did. Seems, yeah, they were all strange I mean, Everybody does. Yeah, she seems kind of yeah, strangely yeah, numb. And then she's sort of, you know, kind of quite passive and accepting when she ends up being raped by Gerard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end of the film, I... And I really kind of had to try and to add the bits together because, you know, I'm glad we've rung the spoiler bell after she is stripped and beaten. And, you know, again, with a modern eye, you have to presume she's probably raped by by the the boys in the gang. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was found naked. And then she is taken back home on a cart pulled by Balthazar. And then we never see her again. And and we presume that she died either from shame Uh, or she took her own life or she died from blood loss. It's very... um, it's you know it's uh, vague and not laboured at all. Yeah. It's kind of, um, and instead, we're meant, what we're meant to do is feel terrible sympathy for the father who is now sort of numb with grief. That's right. And the father seemed very numb before she died. Yeah. Uh, no change. So, no yeah, arc. Yeah, exactly. The the emotional kind of key of the film seems very um, numb. And I think you know a part of that numbness maybe is a way of demonstrating the way that the world looks to Balthazar. Mm-hmm. Maybe the story is um, difficult to follow and uh, um, and sort of strange and episodic because that's what the world looks like to a donkey. Mm-hmm. I, maybe I'm being kind of charitable or interpreting more yeah. than is really there. But that was, that was kind of my take on it. I did come away thinking, um, as, as we talked about EO, my, many of the same questions, I was wondering my, to myself, well, whose story is this? Yeah. It's it's kind of it's kind of Balthazar's story, so it's kind of sort of about the donkey, but only because the donkey features in many scenes. Mm-hmm. He's not really what you describe as a protagonist. Yeah, um, he's more you know a witness. I felt the same way. I felt very odd even asking that question. Whose story is this? Because in both films, they are the title character. They're the they are the characters that are sort of in, if not every scene, almost every scene, and you're still asking like. What is their story? If this is their story, and yeah, it's a, one. At one point, I wrote down that um, I wrote down Baltazar is stolen again because he keeps getting stolen and right. reassigned in life, and the same crap happens again and again. And I said that's very true to life. I mean, the same crap does happen again and again in life. <laughs> um, so then I thought, well, then I think you've mentioned it too. There's this whole anthropomorphic kind of theme running through that that. Maybe animals are very human-like. Maybe they have feelings. You you see Eo's thoughts when he's dreaming, and here you. I mean, I think there's less of that in Ohasad Baltasar. He really seems like a. And it's funny because all the actors are the same way. He just seems like this very stiff, rigid, non-feeling <laughs> character. Yeah. Um, and 
yeah, that's true to life, I guess. There are some people who don't feel anything. But I think in, in film, people have to react to something. Otherwise, there's really no reason to keep watching. I've, I've found myself not really needing to watch any more of the film at some point because no one was reacting to anything. Nothing was, and there was there were no consequences. It seemed like there's this murderer out there, but he's just running around and um, no crimes were really going punished and some of them weren't even really recognized. And um, it, 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 it was similar to EO in the sense that it's, it's a, these, they, they are connective tissue for these stories that don't really play um, together very well. So it doesn't end up being like a complete film or a complete story to me. Preston seems really big on this religious symbolism. There's lots of kind of Christian yeah. sort of symbols in the film, aren't there? This, you know, the way that uh, Balthazar dies among these lambs, yeah. doesn't he? Yep. You know, the, the lead female character is called Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a, a guy riding on a donkey like Christ going into yeah. uh, to um, Jerusalem. And even like uh, for the, the, the final um, sequence where uh, Gerard is using... Uh, Balthazar to carry off his spoils from a robbery. Yeah. The things that they've robbed are basically gold, frankincense, and myrrh, aren't That's they? That's right. Yeah, kind of, they almost kind of read them out, sort of word for word. Yeah, like really, really underlining what what you know the the kind of this repeated religious imagery. Yeah, and yet, um, I'm not sure whether I felt that the religious imagery implied any genuine devotion. It's more like it was um, ticking off some well-known icons, yeah. rather than reflecting on on some profound religious sentiment. Yeah, touchstones, I think, is what they were. I mean, even mm. doesn't even wear, he wears sort of a crown, not a crown of thorns, but she puts this sort of um, uh, wreath oh, of yes. holly or this, um, uh, this, yeah, this crown on his head. Um, yeah, I don't, th- I don't think it's anything more than touchstones just to sort of give something more meaning or kind of putting the myths of the Bible in there to sort of give um, the viewer these little touchstones along the way. Uh, well, I suppose so now that you've said that, I'm starting to think, oh, wait yeah. a second, is Balthazar supposed to be like Jesus then? And like at the end of the movie, he dies for the sins of of the, the very flawed human characters who he carries. Um, yet he remains you know, innocent throughout. Yeah. Now, I wonder whether you know, that's what's being driven at here. But, oh, dear, my brain had to work quite hard to get there. Yes. Well, and again, he's one of the three kings wandering. If you if you take his name at face value of Balthazar... Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, it begins with almost the whole this, the birth in the in the Granger and all that um, uh, in the manger, I guess. Um, he's you know among the straw and among his mother, and then the children are in there, and it's just uh, it seems like a very uh, Christian tale. But there, I don't know, maybe there's a lot of forgiveness in there, like if things go unpunished or unrecognized because it's a Jesus character. We're going to forgive sins. I don't, I don't really know. Yeah. I, or is, is he absorbing all that? You know, every blow that he absorbs is the sin of the, of the human who's trying to wrestle with their fate. I don't know. It was very. Gosh, you know, you say that I, I think that's exactly it, you know, but my, my slow brain wasn't able to cotton onto it. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like I ought to like Bresson a lot more than I do. Yeah. Because I think his, his working method is very similar to um, Roberta Rossellini, mm-hmm. and I really, really love the films of Roberta Rossellini. Yeah. I think both of them would mostly use non-professional actors, yeah. and they would um, get the actors or the performers to um, to rehearse their scenes again and again and again until they were divorced of all meaning, and mm-hmm. so they were just basically following instructions. They were saying these words: yeah. take two steps to the left, look over your right shoulder, say these words, you know, walk out through that door. It was, um, and I think. Um, the idea being that once you eliminate 
um, any sort of actorly elements of performance. You're just left with the raw, real, actual human being underneath. And that's what's transferred onto film. Yeah. You're seeing something which is very, very honest. And I think when Rossellini does it, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, part of the, I think the best bit of advice I got from a whole year of film school mm -hmm. um, was uh, you know, being told in a lecture that if you ever see that there's a film by Roberta Rossellini screening at a cinema and you can get there, go and see that's it. it yeah. That's a great bit of advice. That's very good advice, yeah. So, I've seen you know six or seven of his features at least, and they're all just fantastic. But they're very human and very emotional, very touching. Yeah. Whereas Bresson working in much the same manner, you know, I find cold and technical and uh, difficult to to get much emotional charge from. Yeah, and I'm not really sure why that is. I suspect it's my failing and not his. Um, I don't know. I I felt numbed by it, and I, I just the only other film I think I've seen is Country uh, Diary of a Country Priest, and it felt very similar. I mean, within moments, I felt, oh, I'm in the same territory. I remember this, and it was probably what 16 years ago that I saw the other film. Um, so I think we have to look through it a little bit of the through the lens of a 56 year old film, because I think a lot of that um, those religious touchstones would probably be pretty controversial in 1966, uh. much more than they are now. Yeah. I I did have the luxury of seeing this on DVD. I <laughs> spidered my way up to the attic and I found it on a DVD. Not really. I got it from the library. But um, so some of the bonus features were Louis Malle and Jean-Luc Godard, whose films I really don't, I don't like either of their films either. But they were talking about how there was this TV pro program. It was great seeing them interviewed. But they were talking about how great this film was. And I, I'm not sure if they were publicizing it or trying to get people to go out and see it. But I, I didn't see it as being that great. But, you know, it won the Venice Film um, Festival for, for, you know, for what that means. I mean, for what that's worth. Um, but I, I made a little list here. It's, it's a favorite of Michael Haneke, a favorite of Wes Anderson. It's a favorite really? of Richard Linklater. And it's 16th on the sight and sound poll of the greatest films of all time. Oh, my God. So, so, so it's just you and me who don't like yeah, it. Yeah, I guess so. A couple of no-name podcasters. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't. I would never recommend it to anyone. Um, and I, I think one thing that I and we're, maybe we're starting to connect, or at least I am starting to connect the films a little bit. Um, one thing that one of the worst film instructors I've ever had um, suggested <laughs> to me he said, "You know, you don't don't go back and remake the good films because they're already good, and you're never going to make it better." So that's something like uh, *Manchurian Candidate*, for example, or *Psycho*. Right? Um, he said, "You go back, go back and make remake the bad films." And obviously, people think this is a classic, but I don't think it's a great film. And yet, I think it could. There's probably a story in there somewhere that would be super compelling and wonderful. And then you look to EO because I think they're very similar. Obviously, again, he has seen this film. Um, and he was—he's kind of remaking it. They're—they're they're not that much different from one another. And uh, I think he—I he, think there was a there was a chance there to make a great film out of uh, Bresson's film, probably. And I don't think um, EO is that either. So I—I I gotta say I was pretty disappointed with both films because I'd heard so much about a new film about a donkey and an old film about a donkey, and I've seen the two donkey films, and they're both just donkeys. <laughs> Um, uh, just by way of making uh, connections, yeah. um, as I promised with the spider webs at the beginning of the show, mm -hmm. um, I'm not surprised that Jean-Luc Godard appears on the um, the special features yeah. praising um, Oazar Balthazar because he married Anne uh, Vizemsky, who plays Marie in the film. That's right. Who must have uh, been quite a bit younger than he was. I don't know. I mean... Ooh. Yeah, good, good point, actually, yeah. Because she's what, in that film, she's well, got to be biz, isn't it? 20 or younger. I would think she'd be late teens. And by that point, 
he just died last year, didn't he? Oh, right, and he yeah. He was 90-something, so he's in his 30s probably back then, um, if not even 40, and then she was a youngin. Yeah, oof. The only other thing I've written on my list here is that I think the film is kind of trying to say something about changing attitudes. There's this, you know, this notion of the, um, you know, the change represented by these delinquent youths. They're like a like a they're um they're a cut price motorcycle gang, aren't they? Yeah. Because two of them have got motorcycles, yeah. but the rest of them are on just ordinary push bikes. <laughs> so they couldn't quite roll out the budget. Um, but like there's a kind of a sexual revolution. And this this idea of kind of modernism versus tradition, they make this big thing about farming the land using modern methods. Yes. Um, and the 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 the, the youth Gerardi has this transistor radio, which is like this symbol of of kind of brash modernism. Yeah. Which is kind of pushing its way into into this kind of traditional um, French way of life. Mm-hmm. So I suppose it's uh, it's trying to say something about the shock of the new, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or but he, yeah. yeah, I agree to to the audience in 1966. This would look like something quite different to how it looks to us today. Yeah, uh, in Quebec, for example, there's a sort of revolution against the Catholic Church that happens around the 1960, probably 860s, so 68, 69, I think, um, to the point where a lot of the the, the vocabulary of the sacraments become uh, vulgarities in in modern day uh, French in, in Quebec, um, and I think. Yeah, for that reason, I think you're starting to see some questioning of Catholicism in France as well, and the, the role of the church as well as yeah, I think modernization perhaps. And so there's this interesting little war of oh, you know, like modernization is creating some of these bad humans who are abusing animals and stealing things and running around on bikes like hooligans, um, and at the same time, you know, the, maybe the demise of Catholicism, uh, at least from its, I mean, it used to be super powerful all over Europe and and all over uh, Canada and Quebec. And, you know, obviously Catholicism has started to, I think, take a uh, take a bloody eye, a, bruised, a bruising in the yeah. last 50 or 60 years. So um, there's some interesting things. And I think that's probably less so in EO. I don't think uh, I don't think of EO as being as overtly religious, and I don't think they're the same kinds of uh, touchstones that we talked about in this film um, taking place in EO. I'm going to try and sort of bring the two films together we'll do our our synthesis I I think the thing that joins them is both these films um, I made a little note here are about the Kuleshov effect um, which is so this is like the phenomenon noted by it's a Russian filmmaker, Lev Kuleshov, mm-hmm. um, in like the 1910s and the 1920s. So he was the first guy who discovered that if you cut from anything to a blank human face, yeah, um, then the brain naturally makes makes you read an emotion on the face, um, even though it's not there. Which and this is kind of the reason why something like Team America World Police seems to have some you know profound, subtle acting because when you cut from anything to a blank human face, we naturally read something into it. So now we're cutting from some fairly extreme images to the donkey's face. And it gives us you know, the the opportunity to read the donkey's face as something human and something yeah. profound. And, you know, and there's a lot of shocking um, events in both of these films, which are then transposed against you know, this blank 
big-eyed donkey's face. I think that's where the emotional power of the film is supposed to come from. Yeah. So both films use this effect, but I think they use it to say something quite different. So, you know, they do both have religious overtones and they do both reflect on the inhuman cruelty that people can show to each other and to animals. But I think I think EO it does allow a ray of sunshine into the picture while Balthazar just seems unrelentingly dismal, doesn't it? It's <laughs> such a dismal view of human nature. Yeah. Although, I mean, the, the other thing I noted, though, Dan, is that the, 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 there is one other difference, which is the cruelty in Balthazar is generally personal. So it's, it's you know, it's Gerard actually kicking Balthazar and, and, you know, tying a bit of burning newspaper to his tail. Yeah. Or in EO, cruelty to animals has become industrialised. That animals get treated in just the same ways. There's a, um, a scene where an enormous mechanical grabber is you know, nabbing um, bits of, of scrap metal yeah. at the beginning of EO. And uh, I think the film is suggesting that we treat animals in much the same way as that mechanical hand. Yeah. We have industrialised cruelty. Are we, are we any kinder to animals or to each other now compared to 1966? I think it's hard to say yes. Yeah, it's, it seems about the same. I mean, it's it's interesting. The protests, that's one big thing that you don't see in uh, the 1966 film is the um, the protests at the carnival for animal yeah. rights. And that, that sort of puts the puts the entire carnival to bed at the very beginning of the film. And that sort of sets um, Eo on his journey. And the irony is that by freeing him, they've actually made his life worse in all likelihood. Um, it, probably <laughs> would, it probably wouldn't have been too good around the carnival, but... Um, it gets pretty bad <laughs> when he leaves the carnival. So uh, there's a little irony there, unintended consequence, I guess. Um, I love what you're saying about the blank faces because there are lots of blank faces. and um, It's not just, not just the donkeys. It's not just the donkeys, yeah. Um, and I think that that bit about tone, like the viewer sort of sort of imparting their own uh, feelings and their own emotions onto the characters and sort of figuring out what the reactions are supposed to be, um, it really... It depends much more on the tone of a film and the context. And I don't think in either film, more so in Baltasar, that the context is not set up right. I don't think the tone is ever really established other than being dull. So when you're seeing dullness <laughs> uh, reflected in dull faces, it just kind of makes uh, this sort of monochromatic film, if you will, um, throughout. I think EO, there's a bit more emotion because I think the characters feel much more human. The human characters really react to things in, in a way that they don't do in yeah. in Baltasar. So I think y y you can get any reaction or any emotion, you can conjure anything up with the viewer if you've really established a solid, like, definitive tone. And I think what Bresson has set up is pictures, beautiful framing and beautiful images and blocking and all that, but I don't think he ever really establishes a tone other than this this, this sort of dullness. Dullness. Mm. <laughs> okay, we've got... Let's, let's quickly play my new favourite game. Oh, good. Blatantly stolen from another podcast. Let's play <laughs> Who Am I? Who am I? Oh, I don't know who I am. So my, my, my theory is always is that we, we go to the movies to see ourselves, but, yeah. but ourselves, but different. Ourselves made, if not perfect, then yeah. at least ourselves in a, from, a, from a parallel life. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, having watched two films about animal cruelty this week, did you see yourself <laughs> on screen at all there? <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness um i don't think so i mean there's some football fans in uh eo oh yeah there are you're right actually for some very emotional football fans in fact yeah probably most in that camp but 
I really loved that I mentioned him already. I loved the driver, the heavy metal loving driver who's what, <laughs> delivering is it it's mostly horses, I think, right? He's delivering yeah. mostly horses or cattle. I don't I think it's cattle maybe. I think and it's horses, yeah. Horses. And then EO, presumably to the slaughterhouse. And um he suffers such an awful fate, but I kind of liked him. He was sort of like the brightest character of all. Um, so I'm going to go with him, but boy, I don't want to get the treatment he got at the very end. It's not, there's not a lot of happy endings in either of these no. films. <laughs> no, um, no. The, the character I thought I felt most like was from the very, very beginning of EO, just after um, you get that initial circus performance, the um, the master of ceremonies you know, gets the audience to all applaud for for EO and Cassandra. Yeah. And they go off and then he introduces the next act, which is a guy called the Cube Man, who has this like this, this enormous aluminium cube that he twirls around on his back. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'd like to do that. That looks fun. <laughs> uh, if you if you watch me fiddling with a bit of cutlery while I eat or something, you realize, yeah, yeah. I have the soul of the Cube Man inside me. I think I think that's the that's, that's the version of me I saw tonight. Oh, uh, you've chosen very well. That's a good one. Yeah, the 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 picking the pickings are slim, is what we might say. <laughs> slim pickings, and maybe we should be pleased about that. Yeah. Um, right. Well, let's. Uh, we've just got time to squeeze in. Oh yeah. Uh, also playing at this theatre. So uh, I, I know I always ask you to go first. No, you go first. You go first. Yeah, yeah. Go, go, go. I'm going to go first. I'm going to go first. Only because I haven't, haven't actually watched an awful lot besides donkey films the last couple of weeks, except <laughs> uh, we're continuing with our family Tom Cruise-a-thon. I put a thing about oh, this yeah. on the blog. So we watched Mission Impossible 2. Wow. Oh. Uh, which was, I think, the year 2000's biggest grossing film, at least in the US, I think. It wow. was a big hit at the time. Yeah. Uh, for this Tom Cruise sequel. And it's amazing how, on paper, the year 2000 doesn't look that long ago, but yeah. on celluloid, you know, 2000, the year 2000 seems like ancient history. There's a lot of really kind of um, strange, uncomfortable, old-fashionedness yeah. about this Mission Impossible 2, uh, which looks sort of ludicrous. Oh. There's just some enjoyable ludicrousness in it. Um, so I, I got halfway through the film before I realised, oh, no, it's supposed to be ludicrous. It's, a, it's directed by John Woo and it's supposed yeah. to look and feel like a Hong Kong action film. And once, you know, once I kind of realised or remembered, oh, it's supposed to be, it's a, it's a Hong Kong action film. So it's going to have you know, incredibly melodramatic characters and huge moments and very implausible fights. I kind of settled into it and there's a lot to enjoy, but you know, a lot of kind of old fashioned turn of the century sexism which doesn't play very well yeah. in 2023 i'm sure yeah just 22 years that seems like a short time to me but it's a long time uh, what have you seen something better than that i hope um we've been living in a polar vortex a little bit so there was this oh. very cold weather um this past weekend um, so I was stuck inside. So I actually watched two films on the weekend alone and then mm. watched two films earlier. So I, I've got four titles. Wow. Your cinema is packed. Which is, I think, about what I'd like. That was my old clip, I think. Two to three films a week was sort of what I wanted to do. Um, That's very respectable. Yeah. So I'll go in order. I saw, let's see. First, I saw uh, uh, one of the new, I think it was Netflix, the new Netflix uh, feature called You People. Right. Which features features Jonah Hill as a um, podcaster. 
podcaster. Ah. Podcasters are now protagonists in film. Um, <laughs> pretty interesting. Um, Phil figured uh, featured also uh, Julie Louis Dreyfus. Um, Eddie Murphy's in there <laughs> as the father of a girl that Jonah is uh, engaged to. And the marriage isn't going very so well because it, it, it's a mixed race situation. He's Jewish also. Um, David Duchovny, or I should say maybe the remains of David Duchovny are also in the film as his father. Seems a little pickled somehow, but um, it was I, I enjoyed it. It was good. It really kind of explored uh, race relations in the U.S. today. Um, it also felt at times like a, I think, a sneaker film. They were trying to sell me sneakers, I think, Nike in particular. <laughs> Definitely... Selling fashion, though, too. That was the thing I didn't like is how commercial it felt in some ways. But I guess uh, with these new models of filmmaking, you definitely need to uh, get the money where you can. Um, you have and, to squeeze, squeeze the efforts into the actual scenes. Yeah. And they also exhumed, skip them. They exhumed a couple of people, like Richard Benjamin, who I hadn't seen in a film in, in decades, and um, Elliot Gould show up in these synagogue wow. seeds, Rhea Perlman there. So there are these old faces that you see as well. But uh, it was quite interesting. Um, and then I saw, I think the best film that I saw in the last couple of weeks was The Wonder, which featured uh, Florence Pugh. It's, that's a, and I think in Neshbrago when we were potting in the fall mm. or right before Christmas, baby, um, she had seen it and it's wonderful. I loved it. So ah. it's one of these things I'm not sure why it didn't get more buzz or uh, even award season recognition but that's a fantastic film um we went back and watched great expectations um which is 1998 by fellow londoner alfonso cuaron oh um, i've never seen that oh that, that's probably worth seeing i mean i it's an amazing piece of cinematography so rodrigo prieto's done a lot of the films for both i think uh cuaron and also um Inyaritu and others, um, and he's just a fantastic um, cinematography cinematographer. So I think I would definitely see that just for the filmmaking. Um, it's a pretty good ad- adaptation, um, uh, but if you've read a great, great Expectations, you sort of know what's going to happen. But it's sort of an updating of it, so that was pretty good. And then finally, a friend uh, recommended a prison drama from 1977 called Short Eyes. Ba- oh, based never on heard of that. Yeah, I was actually a friend. I'll, I'll drop another name, Gabriel Vallejo, ah. buddy of ours who writes for um, Law & Order SUV um, right. now. Um, he recommended that to me. I was talking about I'm sort of developing the, this prison idea for a stage play, and uh, he suggested I check out Short Eyes, and I was amazed. And my connection to it was um, the director is Robert Vaughn, I believe, who's still alive at 98. He hasn't made a film in a long time, but I saw him when I was at the University of Colorado. He did a screening of a film with Edward James Olmos called Caught, which I thought was really quite good. And so uh, wait, this, this is Robert Vaughn, the man from Uncle, Robert Vaughn. No, no. It may be Richard. Yeah, it might be Richard Vaughn. I should, ah. I should look it up. It's not Robert Vaughn. I know. I know. I always get confused. Um, and I was a man from Uncle fan. Let me just do a quick... Should come up pretty soon. Quick to Google. Yeah, quick Google. Boy, I'm just wasting time. Richard <laughs> Vaughn. I've got to look him up again. Let me look up the name of the film, but it was called Short Eyes. And um, very, very interesting. And what he said, which shocked me at uh, the screening of the film Caught that I saw, was that he always um, films in sequence. So he basically just starts at the beginning of the film and wow. goes right along from first scene to end. Um, which is shocking to me, but he's a you know a very low budget independent um, filmmaker, and Robert Young, Robert Young. What did I say? Robert Vaughn, Robert Young. Sorry, 
which is also confusing because I think there's a Robert Young who is an actor as well, a television actor. So that's why I get confused. Oh. <laughs> Excuse me. But he, yeah, he says that he um, films in sequence and um, this was fascinating. It was a really good... Um, yeah, it's incredible. Really good film. Very, very independent. 1970. Uh, Curtis Mayfield's in it. He provides some of the music. Luis Guzman is like maybe 21 Wow! in this film. I don't think he speaks a single line, but he's like the most recognizable actor. (laughs) Um, It was interesting. So uh, sort of like a little bit of research for me, but a great week in part because it was so damn cold here. Um, Great week to catch up on some films. We need some of that cold weather here. Absolutely. Excuse not to go to work. Stay home or watch movies. That's what it's about. Yeah. Right. This has been the Two Real Cinema Club. Yeah. Uh, next time around, yeah. well, next next week we're gonna we're, we'll go to the popcorn counter and yeah. we'll talk about something stupid, but because um, you know what we're like. But um, <laughs> but the week after that, we're gonna we're gonna see um, the the Banshees of Inisherin, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll be comparing that to 1990s The Field. So off to Ireland in two weeks' time. Hope you'll join us for that. We'll see you next week for the popcorn counter. Until then, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye, everyone.